it's Jenny LSQ, and welcome to episode 29 of the LSQ podcast. One of my all-time most vivid and favorite concert memories is from a Super Chunk show. I looked it up. It was September 14th, 1993, and I drove out from my mom's house in eastern Queens to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, where Super Chunk were playing an outdoor show on the quad, as it were. And my friend's band, Garden Variety, who I was obsessed with, were opening. So for me, it was the perfect double bill. And I can still picture it, the stage, the audience. It's all bouncing, because I was definitely pogoing. And so it was really an honor for me to get to spend this quality time with two of my heroes, Mac McCon and Laura Balance of Super Chunk, for this episode of the LSQ podcast, which celebrates the 30th anniversary of the label they started in summer of 1989, Merge Records, which over the years has put out albums from legendary artists including Arcade Fire, Neutral Milk Hotel, Spoon, Magnetic Fields, and so many more. If I start listing them, it'll just be insane. And in this conversation, we discuss the parallel histories of both Merge Records and Super Chunk and talk about what Mac and Laura listen for when they get submissions for the label and much more. Plus, another Merge Records artist, Mary Timoney of X-Hex, is also a guest in this episode and another one to file under I'm not worthy. So we'll get to that after this interview with Mac and Laura. Uh, Mac and Laura from Merch Records and Super Chunk and Band of My Dreams. Thank you for <laughs> joining me. Trippy to uh, trippy to have one of my favorite bands that I've been listening to for half my life, more than half my life at this wow. point. Wow as guests on the program and the first episode uh, where there's two guests at the same time and uh, that's an exciting yes, chapter landmark for the podcast it's getting bigger slowly but surely yeah. I just realized also we've been in this band for more than half of our lives that's crazy yeah well I mean this this encounter happens on close to the occasion of the official 30th anniversary celebration of Merge Records and so I definitely want to talk about that quite a bit um, and about Super Chunk um, and about you know your lives and experiences and encounters with music before you met each other. Um, but since we do have this big merge anniversary to celebrate, I'm curious, looking back now, what moments from that first year, from, from 1989, the, the earliest days of realizing that you were starting kind of a business together, what do you remember most most vividly about that that era? I mean, I guess I remember that it didn't really seem like we were starting a business yet, um, and it was mostly happening in Laura's house in terms of like where the, we were dubbing the tapes that we were putting out and boxes of records and stuff were stacked up there. Mm -hmm. Were you living in New York still? Well, I think you were, I we think started it in the summertime of, of 89 and then I went back to uh, school in New York for my last year of college from 89 to 90. Where was that? Um, at Columbia. And, but before I went back to school, we had recorded the first Super Chunk single, Chunk was what we were called at the time. Um, and so the that fall of 89, we put out the first Chunk single. And before that, we had done a couple tapes and another seven inch of a band that we had been in before but the Chunk single was really the first release by an active group because the other stuff was kind of 
compilations of things by bands that didn't really exist anymore. But did it, so it just felt like a necessity at that point, sort of like we want to put out our music and so we'll put it out and, or were, or were there already labels from that era that you've kind of let yourself linger on the thought that maybe we are starting a label here. Like it would be cool if we could do something like, you know, well, I think we were definitely thinking, looking to other labels that we liked as examples you know, like Teen Beat and Sub Pop and Discord, Discord, um, and Homestead, where Gerard Cosloy was. We actually talked to Gerard about Homestead putting out like a compilation of bands that that we were working with on Merge because we were just thinking about tapes and seven inches, and obviously Homestead could do albums. And then at a certain point, Gerard knew that he was leaving homestead to do something new and kind of was like okay let's put this on holds and so we kept doing what we were doing and then eventually he and chris lombardi started matador but it's weird to think that all this was happening within the space of like nine months or something like that um yeah it probably felt like it took a long time to happen while yeah, it was happening yeah, in retrospect it kind of did. just like well that was just it's crazy that that all that that all happened at the same time i also like i think about that summer and what we were listening or what i was listening to in my house over there living with jamila syed mm-hmm. um we listened to a lot of sub pop stuff a lot of mud honey and and um the fluid the fluid and l7 and had bands staying at the house all the time but which all again was all super new then mm-hmm. did it feel super new to you as you know what at that point you were like 20 ish or so yeah 2021 um yeah it felt really new but also like you were listening to the stooges so it didn't you know right. there was a link and but i remember around that time also feeling like a lot of this music that that we were first putting out felt so um, light compared to that, to compared to like mm. Mud Honey and the Stooges. And I don't know. It seemed different. It seemed like, it oh, different. maybe it would be weird if this was part of that same label. Definitely. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I think Bricks, for instance, which was a much more acoustic, recorded in a bedroom kind of thing, had more in common with K than Sub Pop. Right. Or something like right. that. Right. You know? Yeah. How how was that music even reaching you? What was your immediate source of exposure to that to that stuff? Well, living in Chapel Hill, we had this great sort of confluence of circumstances. We had a great rock club, the Cat's Cradle. So bands would come through and play in between DC or Richmond and Atlanta. And we had a great college radio station, WXYC at, at UNC, and also XDU coming out of the Duke University, and um, great record stores. So we we had we had access to all this stuff. Maybe it wasn't immediate, but we we got we heard about stuff. And and you know REM being from just down the road in Athens when we were in high school. Yeah, uh, when I was in high school. Too felt like even though they felt kind of local but they also were making news nationally you know what i mean right. and all, that felt very much like oh this is our thing yeah you know that's different than what's on the radio I, and i before i lived in chapel hill i'd lived in atlanta when i was in like between fourth grade and the end of high school and um there was that punk rock scene develop you know developing right. there too and and bands coming through and it it did feel one thing that I I sort of rue is 
I miss I miss the closeness, the uh, the smallness of the scene back then, and how like people in the punk rock scene, you know, you would go to a show and you might wind up with a band coming home with you just to to stay the night, and not in a not in a sexual way, but yeah. everybody needed somewhere to stay because you weren't making enough money on tour. And to, it, yeah, exactly. It, what you would be, you would feel happy to offer that if yeah, you could, you know. Yeah, and and it felt like this close, really tight knit community because of that. Cause yeah, you would get to know people all over the place, and sometimes it was awful. I mean, once we were on tour, like sometimes it was awful. You'd go to somebody's house, and there would just be cat hair everywhere, and and God knows what, and like <laughs> torture videos that they'd keep you up all night watching. Etc. It wasn't. It wasn't always great. <laughs> <laughs> Torture videos is just a euphemism for the entire experience. It wasn't always cozy. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I guess it is easy to see. Uh, you know, in that the, the the scenes as having been more distinct, and then the things like thinking about this, it's like, oh yeah, all of the things that helped um, broaden exposure to regional music also are the things that over his over time, like not not to say ruined it at all, but sort of removed the that very local and loyal local experience that you could have then because this is before MTV blew up you know, alternative underground music or something. And it's like, well that's a blessing and a curse in the same way that the ability to find you know, something that was once only on a limited edition seven inches blessing right. and a curse. Well, and also this thing, things have evolved from like what, what bands were expecting. When you formed a band back in the 70s or the 80s, you weren't thinking you were going to make a living being in that band. You were thinking, I'm going to keep my day job and I'm going to scrape by and I'm going to get a job that'll let me go on tour and come back and still have my job when I get back. But now I feel like people start bands and they think that like, all right, I'm quitting. This is my new job. And it's I'm gonna... even less realistic now than ever. <laughs> yeah, it is. To make is... a living being in a band. Well, they yeah, they they start with no um, backup plan. The idea that there had to be a backup plan, you know, I think, yeah, it always seemed to exist. And when I interview younger artists on the podcast, too, I, I find that, you know, because I ask about those things, like when you were, was there, did your parents want you to have a backup plan or whatever? And it's like, no, there's no, you know, I'm old enough still where it's just like, yeah, of course, if you were going to, unless you were like getting a scholarship for the arts thing you were doing, it was pre- pretty reasonable to assume you might be, suge- it might be suggested you have a backup plan or something. Yeah, whereas I think that when we started the label and the band, it was much more... I mean, a hobby is the wrong word because it wasn't like, oh, we're just going to do this. Like, we were spending a lot of time on it, but it was not um, like I was saying before. Like, oh, this is our new business. It wasn't. An, it wasn't ambitious. Right. It was. It was a side project. It was like we were also in college. We yeah. were also in a band. We also had jobs. Yeah. You know, it was. It was. Um. It was one of many things we were doing. When did it start to feel like exciting that it was? T- starting to take up your time like that it was going oh, it was, well i think it was exciting right away as soon as as uh now i forgot his name the really tall guy that worked at cargo in chicago um bruno bruno as soon as bruno said yes i will take 100 of those seven inches i was like oh, this yeah. is happening yeah this is amazing and then he sent a check and i was like yes it's working yeah, I mean, just getting. I mean, I think the bands still feel like this the first time you have your own record in your hand with the, the sleeve and everything. You know, that's like a that's a special moment. 
Yeah. Right. But I mean, I would guess in those early years when Super Chunk was becoming more and more of a focus and you were on tour all the time and that, you know, it was that Super Chunk was the focus probably. And that, I mean, did you always... Definitely became that. Yeah. Before the label was... I mean, the Super Chunk, you're right, kind of got bigger than the label or faster than the label. And and that partly is because we toured with Super Chunk all the time, so we couldn't spend as much time working on the label as we as we would have if we were home all the time. Because it was just you we guys and like spy thing. <laughs> well, actually, at <laughs> that point, it was us and uh, like the people, other people who were just around that wanted to help, like yeah. like. Randy Bullock helped. Ash Bowie, who was also in Polvo, helped. Um, you know, they would just ch- like check the post office box for us, right? And see if anybody had sent five dollars to get a seven inch, and they would ship it to them, right? But it wasn't a lot of work. But did you? H- how early on did you feel like, whether articulated or not, that there was a kind of an ethos or a set or a aesthetic that felt like this is right for merge or this is and was that the kind of thing that you guys would discuss very much early on i don't think we ever discussed an aesthetic like it was more like at first it was really local yeah and i think that once we started doing uh records by other bands erectus monotone um local. La- lamb chop local ish nashville but with a we're still friends connection. that still our friends bands but once we started putting out records by other bands that we neither of us was in i think that made it feel more like real you know yeah. um and then again like once we started touring and meeting people around the country whether people in bands or people with labels um and uh i think that that also made it feel like oh we're connected to like a bigger group of people who are doing similar things, you know? Right. Um, but like Laura said, just the fact that someone that we could sell them, we could sell 500 records, you know, of a, of a pressing was like, those are seven inch amazing, <laughs> you not, know, not full size. <laughs> no, records. but still yeah. se- 500 singles by a band that no one's heard of before. is like, a, right, that's a, a lot of a weird that's thing. A yeah. Lot. Yeah. How long did it take before it started to be like a profitable business? 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm guessing that pretty early on, it felt like like uh, the right it was it was the right strategy for Superchunk to be on your own label. I mean, as opposed to, I'm guessing that you know major labels started banging on the door at some point. Not I mean, really till we had a couple records out on Matador, because Merge was only doing the seven inches, so we couldn't afford to do albums. And we'd already been talking to Gerard when he was at Homestead, and then. When he started Matador, we started talking to him about doing Super Chunk records on Matador. In fact, we had to change our name to Super Chunk from Chunk before the first album because Gerard knew Sam Bennett and the percussion group Chunk, which was like a knitting factory kind of Mm. band. And he said they didn't want to change their name and they didn't want us to use the name either. So, um, (laughs) uh, So we did, you know, we were doing full lengths as Super Chunk on Matador and then still doing all the singles on Merge. Um, and I think around the time of our second album, No Pocky for Kitty, was when we started hearing from major labels and talking, having lunches right. out here in Los Angeles or in New York or whatever. Did you ever seriously consider anything like that? Not, really. Not serious enough to ever like look at a contract or 
right. anything like that. But I think that being on, obviously being on Matador helped the band's profile and allowed us to tour and the tours were doing really well. And then Super uh, Merge was kind of on a parallel track doing set our singles and other bands' singles and stuff. And I think that when we first started working with Touch and Go, which allowed Merge to do full lengths, that was like a big leap into being a real label. And the first albums that we did was the first Paul Vo record and Tossing Seas, which is our first singles compilation. And I think that, again, just made it feel like a real thing when you have the CD, LP, and cassette of your new <laughs> of your new album as opposed to just singles, you know. But it wasn't too long before Merge was putting out some of the most important album, you know, indie albums of any given year. I mean, I was working at CMJ at the time, and I remember even just early days for me of like learning about which labels were which and what was what. Of course, Neutral Milk Hotel at this point goes without saying. I don't think having been like a kid who was into what Merge was putting out at the time, I, it it occurred to me quite how important that record was within the first like oh. two to five years of its release compared to, you know, the other things that were so great, you know, in that category that were so great, whether it was like Olivia Tremor Control or Beulah mm-hmm. or, you know, things where it's just like there was so much great stuff of that ilk that um, obviously now time has proven that to be one of the classic albums of the genre. It was really wild to discover whole scenes like that, you know, like you'd hear about one band and then you'd realize, like you were saying, there's all these other bands that are, you know, coming from Athens or Louisiana or whatever. Um, But I don't think that we would have been able to work with any of those bands if we hadn't started working with Touch and Go and putting out full-length records because it allowed us to be taken seriously um, as a as a label that you could put out a, a, a full length on, and so and that find, allowed and find the record in and any find city the record, you might go to exactly, yeah. and that allowed us to start working with Magnetic Fields, which is one of the other yeah. first full lengths we put out, which also has its 25th anniversary this year, is Charm of the Highway Strip, which was the first album we did with them. Wow! And that that way, when our friend Brian McPherson, who knew uh, Jeff Mangum and Neutral Milk Hotel guys, when he's thinking, oh, who would be a good label? You know, he sent us uh, that that first record on Avery Island, sent us a tape of that. So, just being in people's idea of like, what would be a good label for to yeah. work with this band that I think is great? You know, the fact that but that's we probably came to still mind kind of how awesome. That's probably still kind of how you you find some of the best for artists, sure. right? For Definitely. sure, for sure. But also, I really think that there was this confluence of us being in a band and touring all the time, touch and go coming along and being willing to do the manufacturing and distribution, which is which cut us out of having to do a lot of the the work, the day-to-day grunt work of getting a record out. Right. Um, so we were still able to tour and run this record label when we were home and, and you know, stay in touch with Touch and Go on the phone while we were on the road and keep things rolling. But also we were out there meeting people it's how we got to meet Brian and how we met bands that we wanted to work with. It, it, um, I think having the band and the label at the same time influenced how Merge developed in a, in, in a really different way than mm-hmm. any other label that I can think of. Yeah, than if we had just been sitting at home in North As, Carolina. Aside from Discord, yeah. maybe. And yeah. Discord was such a DC-focused label as well. That's, mm-hmm. that, you know, I think that we were more out there going oh like we're we're touring in australia and new zealand like we could meet 
the people who work at Flying Nun and maybe, you know, work with a band from there. Like, I think that we were much more like outward looking in that way. Yeah. I mean, but, and do you think some of what you're describing is kind of, um, I don't know, like letting it fit in where it fit into what you were doing with Super Chunk is because of this idea you described of not really expecting this stuff to be like your entire livelihood or is that was that kind of just an ingrained idea that like wow is this gonna this is gonna be this is gonna be what my money comes where my money comes from it never yeah it never occurred to me that that it, that it was gonna be my career yeah was, it was there something we were doing that was fun right and and it was really awesome when you met a great band like rocket from the crypt to be able to ask them like can we put out a seven inch and then say yes? Yeah. You know? Or drive like Jehu. That was so exciting. Yeah. And I don't know, but, but yeah, it never, it never occurred to me that, that as, even 10 years into it, that we'd still be doing it now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so what, I mean, all right, well, did you have a backup plan when you were? No, in, no, 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 not really. What I mean, do you, th I think... what do you think you would have done to, to pay the bills if you had if never path had never gone? I don't know. I, you know, I have this, these really useful degrees in, uh, I, I majored in anthropology and I minored in geology. <laughs> all, right, all right. I guess I would have had to go back to school. Right. Do some literal and metaphoric dinging yes <laughs> <laughs> and where did you grow up uh atlanta mostly and then yeah i did a lot of growing up once i moved to north carolina i guess like i moved there before my senior year of high school you know i feel like i grew up in college and yeah. after college more than <laughs> when when it's funny when people ask that question i don't know where did you grow up i grew up in queens new york and when did you grow up? That's another thing. Like, what is growing up? Exactly. Well, in the in in here, I don't know if I'm there yet. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's and also that talking about the way like time gets compressed, because you're saying you felt like when you moved back to North Carolina before your senior year, and it's true. Like, senior year in high school, when I think about it, it seems like that lasted like three years in ter <laughs> in terms of like how you start thinking of things differently and like the music that you learn about and the shows that you go to and, and kind of like what you're able to do in terms of your independence and things like that. I feel like a lot happens in, obviously, it, you know, if you go to college, that's another thing. But like, I feel like junior, senior year in high school is like you compress like five years of like learning about stuff and absorbing things that influence you into like a year. You right. Know. Yeah, and every memory either you, there's you can remember more things from that year than mm -hmm. meant than most most points in in your life. I suppose everything seems so important then. I do think of I do when we're talking about like the independent music scene in like the early to mid 80s. I saw the church the other night mm. for the first time in a long time and they were playing at the Cat's Cradle. And when when I was in high school a lot of the English bands didn't come to North Carolina, even though we did have good clubs and stuff. So we drove to D.C. to see the church um, in probably like 1984 or something like that, 85. And I'm, 
I was just wondering, how did we even buy tickets back then? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't have a credit card, and I you obviously probably, wasn't going online. <laughs> like, was like you probably went. We're hoping you could get one when you got there. That, that's what I'm wondering. Did we drive all the way to Washington, well, hoping that 9:30 Club right. wouldn't be sold out? Yeah, you, you know what I mean, I guess the only other thing would be if a local ticket seller in your town sold tickets to shows in the oh, region. You right. could have gone there in person and bought them, maybe. Yeah. But no, I was just remembering the when I started going to shows in the city. In the city. Uh-huh. Um, um, you ha- you would call this number. It was a two one two number. You would call, and it was a recording. And God bless the people who like maintained it. Every week, they would read the show listings, for the venues oh in alphabetical gosh. order: ABC No Rio, Monday, oh January third. You know, oh, and yeah. they would list the shows and and maybe the, even the times, or maybe just the shows. Then you'd have to call the venue if you wanted the times. But and if you zoned out, you'd have to go call again and listen from the Start beginning again. if you were going to like. A show at like the Lion's Den or something. That's incredible. One time we drove all the way from Raleigh to Norfolk, Virginia, which is about four or five hours to see Public Image, mm. and they canceled. But there was no way to know they would cancel. We weren't right. There was no website to check. Or whatever. Like Morrissey just Circuit pull up. Twenty nineteen. Yeah, you just yeah. pull up at the club, <laughs> and it's like, sorry, show's not happening. You just drove drive five hours back. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it was just, my like, just God. stuff like that. You know? Yeah. And so when was the when did you start doing that driving? You know, when did that become a thing that was allowable to uh, to go drive to a show? And what were the what was the first one you remember? Probably going to Richmond because it was only like two and a half hours away, and I, I had friends that were older that. I mean, I could drive also, but maybe to my parents, it seemed like, okay, like your friends are 18. That's even better than being 16. I don't know. But like we would drive to Richmond and see hardcore shows or Mm. we drove up there to see Jesus and Mary Chain on their first tour. And then DC was only like another two hours. So like DC and Richmond was pretty, pretty common and seemed doable. And what were the artists you felt most attached to during those early years of, of kind of finding that stuff? Well, I think that um, in some ways, like any band like Jesus and Mary Chain that was like, oh my gosh, like a band from England that like you've seen on the cover of NME or something like that, like that's radical that you could go see that band in concert. Um, But then also uh, the band Honor Roll, which is from Richmond and would open a lot of those shows for the bands from out of town because they were kind of like maybe the the biggest, biggest, the biggest alternative band in Richmond or something like that. Um, and they would come down and play North Carolina a lot too. So you get um, attached to kind of regional bands that you got to see a lot and that were great. 86 from Atlanta is another band like that. Um, the drummer went on to be a drummer for Jesus Lizard. Okay. Um, but like you'd see these regional bands that maybe never got out of that region or they just didn't tour a lot or whatever. But you know, it was exciting yeah, to, they were awesome. to get to see those bands. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, did you start thinking about playing music at all? When did, when did the idea that you would have your own band become a, I'd never occurred to me that I would be in a band. I didn't want to, I was terrified of that idea. <laughs> I was playing music with friends, but, and I was in like a cover band in high school that would play like parties and stuff, but it was, and we, we opened for a couple people at clubs, but it was definitely like, we saw the bands that we were going to see as doing something different, like more real than what we were doing. You, right. you know what I mean? But, but did you, did it appeal to you? Did you want, did you, oh, yeah. did you dream of it early Oh, on? for sure. Yeah. 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 And got, you were, you always, you were as the singer. I was the guitar player. Right. I was not the singer. Right. Yeah. That the, happened out of necessity. The singer, yeah. 
The singing was not like, you know, it was more like, I was more into like Angus Young and Pete Townsend mm. than like Roger Daltrey. Yeah. No offense, Roger. No offense, Roger. And so, okay, so you, you loved music though, I right? Loved, yeah. And I, you know, I remember going to see shows all the time in Atlanta and it never occurred to me that I would want to be on stage. It did not draw me at all. Right. But what were the, what were the bands or artists that you felt like, or, you know, as a kid, really, you fell in love with? Well, when I started going to shows, you know, I remember Sonic Youth really impressed me. One of the first shows I went to was the the Bad Brains and Neon Christ. And I grew at that first show. I was like, what the, what the fuck is going on? I don't understand this. What, what am I hearing? Well, I was going to say like, I could definitely see seeing the bad brains and not going, I could do that because that's insane. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, I don't have an alien spacecraft, so I don't think I can do that. God. Yeah. Um, but I grew to really love the Bad Brains and and their songs. But and yeah, it never occurred to me that I would want to play them. And you know, I loved David Bowie. I loved like I loved the Lords of the New Church. I loved the Bauhaus. Right. I, like, there was a little bit of a goth thing going. But you were you were. It sounds like you were drawn toward the toward something different musically, toward not something stuff that wasn't like everything else. I mean, what what do you think are some of the qualities that the music that really pulled you in had or still have? What's your what's your special weakness as far as the kind of music you like? Huh. All the people you just listed are very dramatic. They are very dramatic. Adamant. Adamant. Oh very my dramatic. gosh. That really that was that was sort of like akin to watching the Batman and Robin show, you know, on TV. The Batman, you know, Bat- mm-hmm. when Batman was on TV in the 70s, there was something about that that I was like, ooh, that makes me feel weird. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> and the, them in their costumes or whatever. And the first time I saw Adam Ant on TV, it was like um, Adam and the Ants, that is. It had to be in the late 70s. Yeah. They Somebody broadcast this show that they played on this this set that looked like a pirate ship okay and (laughs) and they were of course all in costume and i think i was like 14 and i was fixated and really it stirred something inside of me that was not i want to do that it was like this this makes me feel weird yeah (laughs) what is what is this i like it yeah what is it i like it a lot and you know when i was a kid i felt I had experienced uh, some trauma and I felt different than everybody around me. And I, I wonder a lot of times if a lot of people that get into punk rock have something kind of like this where I feel I felt like an outsider. I felt like people didn't know what was going on with me. And there was something about getting involved in this scene that felt like it was full of misfits and outcasts and people that didn't fit in. That really appealed to me, and and the music was a big part of it. So when did you? So you were you truly were you didn't want to play music, but socially it just was sort of a thing that arose for you. Yes. Yeah. Because I met Mac, and Mac needed a bass player, and he actually first tried to recruit one of my roommates. I don't know how this really worked. I don't either, because I didn't own a bass. Had to get no, one from but, somewhere. You know, Sue. Had a base, a Budweiser Oh, one of base. your one of your roommates. No. Had yes. A base. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Sue, um, you know Sue. Yeah, Sue. 
you she know. had the Budweiser base from because her dad worked for Budweiser. And really? So, and so you that. were going to come over and teach her how to play it. Oh, okay. And then it turned into me learning how to play bass somehow. I don't remember this. But I don't remember bass, ever playing like the Bud. I don't think I played the Budweiser bass. Okay. And at that point, were you guys already friends? We were both working at Pepper's Pizza. And our friend um, Jonathan Newman, who I had been in bands with in high school, uh, played drums. And so we started playing together. In fact, I just found a couple of pictures the other day of like us playing at a party. But again, it was like, I don't even think we learned covers. I think we just made up songs and... Like, Cheryl, put me on the guest list. Yeah, just like songs about <laughs> our friends and stuff, you uh-huh. know? It was like that kind of thing. When did you start to like it? When did it start to feel good? It took it took a few years. Yeah. But you stuck with it. I mean, I it, yeah. Wh- why? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure because it, it was so embarrassing. Like, because I, I would really screw up. I would have panic attacks kind of and, and screw up and not be able to think. And um, it was really embarrassing. And I hate being embarrassed. I especially hated being embarrassed back then. Now I, I can deal with it better. If only you would have realized that no one could hear what was going on anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was probably like, yeah, four years or something before I got comfortable enough to think like, oh, this is fun. When did the band start to feel important to you guys? That that's as you just was undeniable that you really like loved it and cared about it. I think by 92, it started to feel kind of important to me. Yeah. Like, I think when we, I mean, even bands I was in in high school and, and, uh, other bands before super chunk, I feel like every show felt kind of like a shit show because you could just never practice enough or play enough. You weren't going on tour. You're just playing like a, Oh, we got to open for this band. And then like, and a a lot of it too, was the first year after we formed the band, Mac was still at school in New York and I was in Chapel Hill. And so we would get together and play like like we recorded our first album when I was at home for Christmas break, basically. Right. Yeah. So we hadn't rehearsed at all. Yeah. And you can tell by the way that record sounds. And <laughs> and also he would come up with shows. Like he'd be like, "Oh, we can play at CBGBs. You guys come up." And I'd be like, "Holy crap! I don't know how to play anything." <laughs> you know? But but, but Matt has always been perfectly comfortable flying by the seat of his pants. But what I was gonna say was like that, I that always made me super nervous those things but i don't feel i feel like once we did like our first real tour of the whole country by the end of that tour and by the time we recorded no pocky for kitty which was like halfway through that tour it felt like we could just play a show and not have it feel like what's gonna go wrong now or whatever you know what i mean right i think it's just like repetition to feel like you know what you're doing yeah you know what i mean and it gets so much more enjoyable when you feel like you can just I mean I still get nervous before every show but once you're doing it you can actually like have fun and not just worry which is what it's like until you get to that point I would imagine too with the kind of music that especially early on you guys were playing that it is some there is something athletic about it it's like about keeping up with it and like and if you're once you're trained yeah once you're you've been in training with it for a while you're just Mm -hmm. like just like running or something Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, you know, we would go on tour with band, opening for bands like Mudhoney um, or playing with a band like Seaweed at that time. Um, yeah. 
and oh, and you see these bands that are just or or like seeing Fuga- monsters, seeing yeah. Fugazi like we were talking about and you just go like oh my god these bands are so good live and so you're like we're never gonna like how can you possibly like be as powerful as they were you, you know what I mean when you feel like you're just kind of like just trying to you know <laughs> play, the, play the songs right or whatever um, so in some ways it was a great thing to to be able to see every night, you know, like how to be a good band, how to be a good live band, you know. So, I mean, nowadays, and I mean, pretty much since you uh, were in a position with a label where you knew every year you could sign something new and, and be looking for new things all the time, what sort of things do you feel like you're looking for, listening for when you're considering an artist for the label? It's It's really hard to define what strikes you in a way you you, you know what I mean because there's so much stuff that we get sent either by friends of ours or just managers or other bands that we work with that you really like it it's really good it's like you can identify it as like this is a really good band but that doesn't quite do the same thing that this other thing does that that you listen to you know and I it's it's really hard to put your my finger on anyway like what it is about that that connects in a different way right you know and i think that one one way that i can usually tell is if i keep wanting to go back and listen to that thing you you know what i mean like and and so sometimes it takes us a really long time to decide whether we want to put a record out or not because we both have to like digest it really you know what i mean and a lot of times the thing that you hear the first time you go this sounds cool by the time you're done even listening that first time through you might be kind of like well i don't know you know where it happens it can happen fast yeah Yeah. there's other things that you listen to you go that was pretty good and then like if you find yourself two days later going like i'm gonna like listen to that again you know like if there's something that keeps drawing you back in i think that's like a good sign right and i would imagine some of it has changed over the years as you've gone from like not knowing what you were doing to knowing what you're doing with like running a company in general and a record company specifically that probably could have could be freer with what you were listening for in the early days than than now where like practical concerns enter the picture it feels like there's just more and more bands now and that makes it harder to decide what who's who's going to make the cut you know because there are a lot of good bands yeah and and we have limited capacity to put out we can only put out so many records in a year as one record label without it just really seeming like we're just throwing them out there and not doing anything to promote them. Right. Um, so it's really hard to make the right decisions. I but luckily there's a lot of good labels out there also. Yes. Based on the music that people are sending you, do you think that there are fewer young people playing guitar music? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish that we... I wish that what we got in the mail or the email so to speak yeah was more wide ranging you know what i mean so that people thought of merge as like a home for more different kinds of things yeah um because i think that would be way more interesting than than a lot of what we do get but having said that we get more good stuff than we could ever 
put out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and there's no shortage of kids starting bands with guitars in them from your vantage point. N- yeah, no. No. <laughs> no shortage. <laughs> <laughs> I find that, I find that your, the daunted tone of voice you say that with reassuring this this summer we're putting out the Titus Andronicus album that was produced by Bob Mould. And so it's like gu- guitar bands that we grew up loving, guitar and two artists that we still work with. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. There's a lot of guitars out there. We're, um, yeah. you know, new Michael Cronin record coming later this year. L.A. Yeah. Guitars everywhere in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, I mean... Gauche from D.C. Guitars. Yeah. I mean, there's... There's, there's different kinds of guitars. Yeah. Lots of different kinds of guitars. Yeah. New Fruit Bats album. Oh, yeah. Beautiful guitar music. Totally. You know. um, so, a lot of guitars still happening. And, you know, like, we are always trying to expand what we what we do. I mean, we're putting out a new Destroyer record. I used to think of them as a guitar band, and they're still lots of guitars on those records but you know dan goes in different directions and does different things with what destroyer yeah. is supposed to be like we work with sneaks from dc ava plays bass on some things plays bass guitar but sometimes it's just her and a microphone and you know a laptop and it's still great so i think that it's like it's a wide range of what we like and what we want to work with but there is no shortage of guitars so the merge 30th anniversary activity slate of activities mm. um, really kind of kicks off over the summer. But tell me more about what, what the plan is for that. Well, as you know, every five years we have a, a anniversary celebration and a big festival in Durham and Chapel Hill, Carborough, North Carolina. Um, and so I can't remember how many bands are playing this time. Is it 30 it's a lot of bands. 30 for 30. 30-something. 30 yeah, it might be more than 30. I've lost count. It keeps changing. Yeah. Um, uh, the last weekend in July um, at various venues, Cat's Cradle, Carolina Theater, Motor Co., Orange County Social Club. And it's always great to see all the bands in one place, which is a unique thing. You know what I mean? Like you see them when they come through town, you know. You see telekinesis when he comes through and plays. You see Waxahachie when they come through. But to see them all like together is really fun. And then to see the people that come from all over the world, you know, people come from Brazil, Japan, Europe, England, to come for the weekend and just and people you've been seeing. I'm sure people who've been, yeah since been... the first one yeah. So um, it's always it's always good. And we're doing this series of uh, releases throughout the year, as you know. Um, for people who subscribe to the Born Under a Good Sign series, which is named after a Teenage Fan Club song. Mm-hmm. And uh, most recently, um, subscribers got the acoustic version of Foolish that we recorded. So good. Um, and so it's the 25th anniversary of that album. So um, that's, a, that's another thing that we're celebrating. But there's, yeah, there's a lot going on. Well, thank you guys so much for getting together with me to do this podcast thing. Yeah, thank thanks. you for thank coming you. over here. It's yeah. great to finally get to talk with you, Laura. Yeah, good After to all these you. years. Really fun. So I still have this tab open on my laptop with Super Chunk's concert history. Shout out concertarchives.org. Thanks for the memory jog on that Pratt Institute show. But there were some other amazing bills that Super Chunk was on during that same era. April 19th, 1993, Super Chunk and Rocket from the Crypt at the Bottleneck in Lawrence, Kansas. Or Super Chunk, Sonic Youth, and the Boredoms in October of 92 in Richmond, Virginia. 
Were you at either of those shows? What do you remember about it? Hit me up on Twitter. Let's geek out. You can reach me at Jenny LSQ. Speaking of geeking out, I tried to keep it relatively chill when I got to meet Mary Timoney, one of my musical heroes. We sat for the interview you're about to hear in the bar and grill at the Terragram Ballroom. Thanks to them for hosting us. While Mary's current band, X-Hex, was on the road supporting their awesome new album, It's Real, which Merge released earlier in 2019. And X-Hex are going to be playing at that Merge 30 down in Chapel Hill later this month. Gotta love a venue with a bar and grill in yeah, it. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, mid-show, you need a grilled cheese. This is where you get it. <laughs> this is where you go. So where is home for you nowadays? I live in D.C. Okay. Yeah. And you've pretty much lived in D.C. now for your whole, your uh, whole no, adult I life? Well, I grew up there. And yeah. um, then I went to school in Boston at BU. And then I lived in Boston for a really long time. And I moved back to D.C., like a little over 10, maybe 15 years ago. So I do, I was yeah. in Boston for quite a while though. As a, as a kid, do you, did you sort of have a sense that you would want to be there, you know, and not end up there is a weird way of putting it, but that you would, that the, that was the place that you would, no. or did you feel like you wanted to flee at the first time? I wanted time? to get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, what do you think drew you back there? Why do you family, still? Yeah, my family and um, and I was also playing with people that lived in D.C. at the time that I moved back. Um, but really now it's my family. My parents are older, so you want to stay close by. I have to. Yeah, I'm taking care of them, and yeah, so yeah. I just think it's it's uh, it's interesting the way the things that you feel like you're escaping sort of end up becoming so much a part of your of what define you and your personality huh. that it's like, you know, oh. somewhere in between the thing you wanted to escape and the thing like you're proud to have come from, Whoa. you know, like I wonder if yeah. you have like, if you feel like a sort of pride about DC and the musical culture from which I'm sure that if emerged. I didn't live there, I would. And I did feel that way when I lived in Boston. I, I well, when it was like, you know, early twenties, I remember feeling very, uh, just, conf- you know, I missed it because it was a really intense like music scene there in the 80s when I was growing up and I was just like thought that's the way it was everywhere and I moved to Boston and it didn't have the same <laughs> vibe right. and I was, con- I was like oh and I guess part of me kind of liked that but part of me was like really missed DC but what, what do you mean honest, when you I say could, intense I could leave what was, I could leave what was intense about um, it about DC growing well, up? Yeah, what was intense about the music scene growing up? Well, that whole, you know, DC hardcore thing was going on in when I was in high school. And uh, it was very inspiring. Right. But I think part of me didn't feel included in it probably as a girl, maybe. And then when I went to Boston, I was like, well, there are a lot of girls playing here, which is ironic because. DC's where the whole Riot Girl thing happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, but I think Riot Girl really came out of this really masculine, it was a reaction to a really masculine 80s scene. But sure. did you feel innately drawn to the that, that kind of counterculture music as soon as you knew it existed as a kid? Like once you knew there's this stuff happening in my town that's fucking weird, like did you feel attracted to it? I guess so. Yeah. I, I just heard about these punk shows from other kids and then felt like uh 
I don't know, I was drawn to it for some reason. I, I don't know what it was. I guess it, it wasn't that I was like, yeah, I, I don't know. It was just like yeah. a bunch of freaky kids. Um, <laughs> I was like, I guess I belong with them. But I mean, had you become obsessed really... with music yet at that point? Uh, when I started going to punk shows. Well, I mean, what was the music that you that first really reached out and, and grabbed you as a kid? What were the what were the artists that you oh, just Oh gosh, I would say, you know, like all kids was interested in music. I think it's just a common kids like music. Just I see they get that. it. They get I, it. Yeah, they do. I mean, I teach kids guitar, and I just you just you know, kids love music. It's just something I don't. I don't know. That's what I see in my life. But anyway, um, I don't know. I guess I got excited about new wave stuff because that was what was happening on the radio. And, the, you know, Friday Night Videos had like the Thompson Twins and the Eurythmics. And oh, yeah. Friday Night Videos. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I do. Wow. Friday Night Videos yeah. for the youngsters was yeah. a program <laughs> late at night on Fridays. That, that was the only way to see music videos. You kind of, if you didn't have cable as an early adopter... Right. kind of makes you wonder why did they make music videos even at that point when it was such a niche thing you had to stay up so late to yeah. see and huh, i don't know yeah well I, yeah what was the like you're just like oh pre-mtv so people still made music videos sometimes that's weird yeah but i guess we would record it and well, that is come to think of it how i first saw the thriller video it is was recorded. it was on friday night videos no and we knew it was going to show and so we set fired <laughs> up the massively large VCR right. to record, and then you had a copy video, of it, and then we watched was, it whenever we wanted. But. That was amazing to have a video on VHS tape. I remember I had a collection of, vid- you know, yeah, get all my VHS tapes of, and now it's like you can see anything you want anytime on YouTube. It's, it was, I remember I had this like T Rex and um, Black Sabbath appear, you know, TV shows on VHS, and I was just like would rewind them and watch them over and up. But yeah, it's just weird how that information was so valuable. Like this yeah. tape you had of Thriller was like a yeah. cool thing that you had. Times. It's interesting because yesterday I, I was saying I met up with uh, Mac and Laura from oh, right. Merge and yeah. Junk, um to record a, an interview. And, and Laura was saying something about how like growing up for her, she remembers like the idea that you would play music in a band, it was still like no one thought that was going to be a big thing. It wasn't, you know, the idea that it would be yeah. as big as it became, say, for an artist like you on not thinking it would happen. It was just like, no, nowadays young people start music projects and there's this sense oh. that maybe it'll all happen and maybe oh, I don't yeah, have to. Oh, yeah, because it can, it can you know, very it can. easily. And that hadn't, that wasn't yeah. a thing back then. Like yeah. the idea that you would play music and I know that you, you know, learned m- multiple instruments like pretty young, but like the idea that you would play music, did it seem like something that was, uh, could be your work? At, Absolutely as a kid? not. Yeah. I, I just remembered one thing. I remember reading in the back of some music magazine that I bought that uh, people, somebody in like Hollywood was buying songs. <laughs> so record this is like in like 1983 or something when I just started playing guitar so I record I sent like these two songs on this cassette tape in an envelope to like someone in California and then like a month later the cassette tape got returned like smashed in the mail to me (laughs) so I was like well I tried to make it but I think I'll never have a music career (laughs) But yeah, but um, so that was like my one. Yeah. <laughs> but that was an example. I guess that's an example of how out of touch it felt to like 
you know, for me, a kid growing up in D.C., especially D.C., because D.C. is like not a music town. It's very square. Right. Where I where I lived in D.C. is very square. But yeah, the, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what the 90s were all about. It was just like, I mean, I grew up, you know, in high school going to these punk shows and like nobody at those, you know, in that scene wanted to. I mean, it was all about just having your own scene and putting out your own records and playing for people who you might be friends with. And that's how I was introduced to the music world. And you did yeah. you take guitar lessons when you when you wanted to learn to play guitar? Were you self? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I grew up well. I took viola when I was little. I sucked at it really bad because I never practiced. And then I got into guitar because my brother had gotten into guitar. He was really into Kiss and like the Grateful Dead and stuff. And and then he was writing songs and he he would let me sing his songs with him, <laughs> which was. Fun and they were great. I mean, he's so talented. My brother's like super talented dude. Um, And then I uh, I just got him to teach me some chords. Then I went to arts high school and studied guitar there. And I did a year at uh, school at college for classical guitar. And then I quit taking lessons because I just found that I really just wanted to be a creative. I just liked rock music. I wanted to be creative. I was like taught. I was just got burnt out. It's unstudying. Right. Character. It must have yeah. felt like they were, you know, divergent things at that point. Like the yeah. academic version of it yeah. versus the like figure... real life having a bad yeah. version. I, you know, I was just like these, you know, people that I hang out with don't take music lessons. <laughs> so right. why should I? <laughs> right. But at the same time, yeah, I could not figure out how it connected. I was like, I'm interested in. You know, learning how to play classical guitar, but that seemed like so remotely different than like going to see Fugazi or like. But did the actual act physically of holding an instrument? Did it feel like immediately like? Oh yeah. Electric to you? Yeah. Any yeah, and it wasn't like me trying to be in a punk band that felt electric. It was like me learning some classical song or writing some like you know weird hippie folk song on my acoustic guitar. That's all I really love to do. And then it took me until I was like. 20 to figure out I could be creative and be in a band. I don't know. It just was like weird. I couldn't figure it out. So, uh, because it's interesting that you you give guitar lessons now. I mean, do you think that your approach as a teacher, uh, like how do you sort of with your students try and Mm -hmm. avoid them feeling what you felt? By trying to see what they like and, well, I don't know. I really try to teach them music that they're excited about, but then I also start introducing things that are good right <laughs> um, yeah. not that that's not good but sometimes they're into cool stuff but um the good for them to learn right they're taking helping make the connections between the things that they like and things yeah. that would be important to be able to play yeah right. yeah yeah how many students do you will at any given time when you're home and, and, and uh, available to do it do you teach this last year i only had about six but I, i've been up to like 25 at one point when i wasn't touring it was wow. a full-time job for a little while. But, yeah, now it's awesome because I just have enough so that it's really a nice activity for me. I really like them a lot, and I get a lot out of Am I it. remembering correctly now yeah. suddenly that Lindsay's from Snail oh, yeah. Mail was yeah, a senior? Yeah, yeah, we did lessons for about a year. Right. She was already – she didn't need lessons because she was already really good. Right. <laughs> we just, like, learned, like, the two – guitar parts in these television songs and hung out and she's great when did you going back to to 
your own early yeah. years of this. When did you start writing song? When did writing songs start to oh, appeal to you? Um, pretty well. That's why I decided I like guitar because I saw my brother wrote songs on guitar, and that suddenly sparked like something in my brain where I was like, "Oh, this is fun." So, yeah, I guess I mean that's why I got him to show me some chords because then <clears throat> I started trying to copy him and also write songs <laughs> yeah and so. when, when did songwriting start to feel good to you how at what point did it start to feel like something that was a key I mean just the process of sitting there with an acoustic and like zoning out uh immediately felt like fun like any creative processes you right. do it because it's fun it's like playing like you know like a child's play or whatever. like you're like as you go to this, it's like you go to this different part in your of your brain that you don't always use every day. But um, I'm sure whatever I was writing was really bad, but it was just fun. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> like, I, I I'm thinking about a, a a quote of yours that I read from ninety something, oh, ninety, yeah. 90 late or something like hmm. that, about reflecting on some of your earlier, at least early days of helium, for instance, of writing songs that were more coming from a place of expressing. Intense oh, like emotion anger. or anger. Oh, uh, or well, that, I know. Well, I was when in did trouble. You, when did you kind of discover <laughs> yeah. that, like, it wasn't just fun, but that it felt essential? That it felt like there's oh. one way I can, one oh. way I can express this, and yeah. it's this way. Oh, when did that connection yeah. happen? Uh, probably like, uh, I don't know, like in my early twenties. I mean, I don't know. I think like in my family, like <clears throat> I don't know, like my, uh, well, my parents aren't really. My parents were both actors, actually, early on, but then they became, you know, my dad became a judge and my mom was a teacher. And, but there's something in our, my family and our brains where we're just like, I don't know, my brother's an interesting dude. He kind of uh, lives in the world of only being creative now. He's got some, anyway, he's, he's eccentric, I guess you could say, but um, he's wonderful and super smart. Um, but I, I think that our brains just, I don't know, maybe it functions better in that realm than in the real world. Mm. That's, with him, I think he's sort of transitioned full-time into that world now. <laughs> so, I just enter it into, into it to write music. <laughs> I don't know. Right, it's I like try. a room you can walk in. It's hard, though. I mean, songwriting is... Uh, yeah, you don't really do it because it's fun. I think you do it because it's healing, maybe. You know? Yeah. Ultimately, most people end up finding that it it's a process which helps you. It's like, I don't know, like, any, you know, writing in your diary or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think for a long time I um, wrote songs only uh, from a way that, like, is this doing something for me? What am I expressing? Like, you know, then I realized when I was, like, I got to a point when I was like 35 when I realized like I don't, I'm not that angry anymore or depressed and like I don't know I just don't really want to do music anymore so I stopped and then when I came back to it a few years later I just started trying to make songs that were fun to play which is a whole different process and not as fun to do at all <laughs> like so the songs that I write with X-Hex yeah. Betsy's actually really good at just coming up with these pop songs I'm not good at it and I try and it's really goddamn hard <laughs> it's weird I'm kind of like doing something that I'm not great at 
right now. Well, but did you did, yeah. did you go out looking for a, a collaborator that would be able to bring that out? I mean, when you were I didn't. This, it just it's happens, interesting that this actually. project is obviously yeah. named after that solo, you know, yeah, that yeah, solo that's record true. you did. Yeah. And so it feels like a continuation of that in some important ways. Did you know hmm. I want to switch if I'm going to do music? I want it to be more like yeah, this kind of yeah. upbeat zone this like rocking out unapologetic rocking out zone and then did you sort of go out looking for collaborators who you felt like could help you get there uh when the band started i um i had a bunch of songs that i had been sort of writing for this band wild flag that i'd been in and i found with that band i had to bring in songs that were super straight ahead because they got really deconstructed when i brought them to the band but instead of getting deconstructed with now we, we just like went with them and they were super straight ahead and turns out I didn't know when I started playing with Betsy I knew she was a great singer and she had some cool songs I didn't realize like what a pop genius she is but it just like I, I, I mean I feel lucky that we found each other yeah she just is one of those people that just they just pop songs just come out of her really easily she doesn't stress out about it whereas I'll be like working on a song for like a year or something <laughs> Yeah, like this is not good enough. Let me. So it's different. Does does the music that you've made with the different projects you've been with does it feel to you like you're kind of continuing in pursuit of the same sort of sound, or that there's like a kind of the sort of thing you can never quite reach that is the like sound you're going for? I feel like there's something I can never quite reach. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I I feel better about this record than I have about a lot of other records that I've been involved with because I feel like I finally in my uh you know late 40s figured out how to just get things good like in terms of like recording just like not settle for shit that's not working or whatever so yeah I feel good you seem like a very humble you know humble sort of (laughs) artist you know what I mean like I meet a lot of artists and some, yeah. some more than others have a like, yeah, well, yeah, I uh, am the shit. So well, dot, 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 you know, yeah. in, a, in a way that's like that, well, that, that uh, yeah. I'm fully in favor of as a supporter of the arts or whatever, you know, like you I gotta, love all, I love the whole yeah. array of approaches to like knowing or believing huh. in one's in right. one's creativity or something. But yeah. I wonder if obviously you've been in projects that, you know, I'm only a few years younger than you but like yeah. for me like helium was like the big it was like Aww, a very big deal thank you where you're like this band is making it they're doing it uh, they're getting yeah. they're getting big yeah you know yeah, yeah yeah and so i wonder if as that was happening in the moment where things were genuinely getting unequivocally the biggest they've been for you did you yeah. feel like oh yeah i deserve this this is a good project i'm proud of this and Dude, excited no i mean <laughs> really i don't know i don't know it's weird i know what you're saying artists have to be that way you can't get in front of a room of all these people like and be able to do that unless you're like a little bit nuts or and also telling yourself i'm awesome like that's just part of being an artist you know Mm. but yeah i don't know i think my mom really made my brother and i like not like ourselves sometimes right (laughs) yeah I love my mom and she's wonderful but also nobody you know I had to like you know my parents were just like did not want me to be in a rock band right I was I'm still you know from our you know there were still parents 
when we were growing up that didn't know what rock music was and yeah. did not approve of it. You know what I mean? And like no now one, it's no like, one was successful at it that you could ever. Yeah. There was no one anyone knew who was successful. No. Was successful at no, no. It was, it was like those are just do that. Yeah. pictures in a magazine somewhere. There was a band like, in my neighborhood that was successful for our neighborhood called Norman Bates and the Showerheads. Nice. And they opened for the Ramones. <laughs> oh wow! Was, yeah, and it was just That's like cool. Dare to dream. What memory, what stands out most clearly in your mind? Sort of what do you, when you look back on the early days of Helium, sort of like, you know, pr- before the first full length, you know, what do you remember most about that time? And Before the early days of Helium, yeah. what do I remember about that time? Yeah, like sort of when you look back on it now, like what do you, what, what do you sort of remember about um, how you felt about making music? Or does it feel... Does yeah. it, was it an overwhelming time or was it? Oh, exci- yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was the worst time of my whole life. <laughs> After college. I was, I was like super depressed. Um, so you weren't, so right. So it didn't feel like something exciting was happening. No. It just felt scary. It's terrifying. Right. Yeah. I've never been, like after college, helium started and yeah, I was like a really depressed, like severely depressed like really badly and I got you know treatment for it and dealt with it but then like then it was got good you know after a a year of helium going I got in the flow with it but yeah it was just weird at first I was like I don't know I couldn't um it wasn't because of helium at all I was just in a weird place in my life I didn't never really like that first EP we did the pirate pro DP I just felt like it didn't come out well um so if anybody tells That's me they like just that, just crazy, then... Mary, because really? that EP is brilliant. Thank <laughs> I mean... you. I mean, now I have, can see it more objectively, but it was just one of the, you know, I had never really made a record before, so I didn't know how to do anything. But um, yeah, but it's fine now that I don't know. I was just in a weird time in my life. But right. um, but yeah, after I got to be about 25, I started to be less depressed <laughs> yeah there's a couple of years there it was just like i don't know i guess i'm, I'm gonna, intrigued yeah. by the idea that you know that you but you you've kept doing it you yeah keep, you keep doing it i keep doing it you keep it. doing it i keep trying so to at quit some point, it's not it just doesn't happen <laughs> so at some point you yeah. must have gone from from being like why am i doing this this is bu- exacerbating my bummed outness which yeah. it sounds like is what you're describing you're in the beginning like, yeah and this is making me yeah. more miserable to being right. like, you know what? This is what I do. I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. Well, right. I think. Or is it just out of necessity because you're like, this is what I do. This is my vocation. No, I'm, uh, well, it's a little of all of it, I guess. And I think things were just, go- weird things were going on in my life at that point. It wasn't really the music that was bumming me out. Although. 20s are hard. 20s are really hard. Yeah. But, um, no, I mean, I really love to make stuff. Like, if I, you know, because. That seems to be something that works for me, my brain. And then um, I like traveling, and I don't know what the heck else to do. I don't have, you know, kids or anything. Or so at this point, I'm just like, here I am. All right. 
right, well, that brings us to the end of our Merge Records 30th anniversary celebration in episode 29 of the LSQ podcast. I probably should have synced it up and had it been episode number 30. Shruggy emoticon. Um, I've got some exciting interviews in the can for upcoming episodes. The next one is a really fascinating conversation with Johnny Pierce of The Drums. It comes out in a few weeks, just as The Drums are going to be hitting the road on tour again here in North America. And also, a little farther into this year, you'll get to hear episodes with Hamilton Lighthouser, with Paul Banks of Interpol, with Stephen Malkmus, and Laura Jane Grace. All of those on the horizon. Subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can always reach me with questions and feedback at Jenny LSQ. Massive thanks to Mac McCon, Laura Balance, and Mary Timoney, and to you as well. I'll talk to you next time.